please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. We will begin reading in verse 8. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, the word of our God. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book. And to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, and tongue, and people, and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. We are... At a stand, we pause at this point because these verses have become uh, points of contention and difficulty with respect to the service of song in the worship of God. If you were to ask me, what do these verses teach us about how to worship God in song? I would tell you very much. But a challenge comes to our own practice with respect to song. We do not use any musical instruments. But these saints are portrayed as having harps. We sing only the words of the old songs. Songs that are now 3,000 years old. And yet they are said to have sung a new song. So what bearing does this have upon the service of song? And how do we untangle these difficulties? Sound and satisfying answers in this regard require broad considerations. In some things, answers are easy to get. And in other things, answers can be difficult. It's a common notion in evangelicalism today that theology ought to be easy. It ought to be an easy thing. And if theology is difficult, then they'll complain that we must have gone wrong someplace. Or this issue is of no concern if it's so very difficult. Years ago, C.S. Lewis changed my life with a short little quote He said, I don't know why we would think that theology should be any less sophisticated than, say, physics or chemistry. And very much like physics or chemistry, some of the principles are very easy to understand and you pick them up immediately. Others are more difficult to understand and take a lot of time and a high 
exercise of the mind in order to understand them. And so some things can be had in an easy way. And some things, even under the best of circumstances, can only be had in a difficult way. I could give you some um, overview here at this point. And some of you have been with this doctrine and with this practice a long time. No doubt it would be satisfying enough. But ultimately, to um, satisfy the minds of all, the broad considerations and the full story is necessary. We're going to be looking at uh, our considerations under two general heads. We're going to be looking at some principles, namely some principles of ethics, the second commandment in particular. And then we're going to uh, look at the service of song in particular in its historical development. If I might open the pastoral study for just a moment and explain my method here and my reasons for doing it, I don't want to frustrate you, but I, I found myself with something of a pedagogical dilemma on how to best present this information. Some of you have uh, become well acquainted with the issues involved in the service of song. These are ideas that have been with you for a long time. And this would seem to suggest a course of instruction, basically, perhaps just a brief summary concerning exclusive psalmody and um, uh, the musical instruments and the way that they were used. And then uh, a longer discussion of this particular passage and its relationship to those ideas that are already so firmly rooted in your mind. But in God's good providence, we also have in our midst now some who are not so well acquainted with this doctrine or these practices. This suggests a fuller course of instruction, a full treatment of principles and history so that it can be intellectually satisfying. And I mean this in a spiritual way. Sometimes it's the only way that uh, Christ sheep can hear the voice of the shepherd is to hear the full, full story. Well, how am I going to draw these things together? Because, of course, I can't do both a brief treatment and a full treatment at, uh, at the same time. What I'm going to endeavor to do is to give the full treatment, but hopefully in a way that will not be frustrating for people who have been long acquainted with these ideas. I'm hoping to deepen the understanding of even the most advanced. I've even found myself stretching and straining after some of these things. So hopefully we will all find occasion to profit. And it seemed to me that this is a very worthwhile thing to do. Because singing is edifying to us and it is glorifying to God. And so these uh, considerations are always seasonable. So we will go through principles. We will make our way through history. And then finally we will come back to this passage and ask what does this have to do with all of it. This rule requires some extended concentration and patience. 
line upon line and precept upon precept, here a little and there a little, until we've uh, completed the whole. So we first turn our attention to our foundation of principle, which two weeks ago we began. I was describing for you the regulative principle of worship, and I cannot emphasize enough just how important this is. Without a firm grasp on the regulative principle of worship, you will never even understand why anybody would think of singing anything exclusively. All will seem to be optional. Two uh, definitions of the regulative principle of worship. Logically, they cohere, but they're different expressions, and sometimes this can be very helpful. The first definition is what I would call the popular definition of the regulative principle. In worship, if it is not commanded by God, then it is considered forbidden. That's the popular definition, and a very useful one. The second definition I like even better. I call it the Mosaic definition. And we will look at Deuteronomy chapter 12 in just a few moments. But Moses defines it like this. With respect to God's worship, do all that God commands without subtraction and without addition. And it's really that last part that is the point of controversy. Probably all Christians would agree that when God gives us a command with respect to worship, we should do it. The real question is, are we allowed to go beyond the commandment and add other things, things that he's not commanded? This, the regulative principle, denies. Two weeks ago, apparently I was very absent-minded. I did not deliver the outlines to you. I've not been so absent-minded this week, and you have in front of you two little charts that I referenced last week but didn't provide. I wanted to provide something of a contrast here. The first chart is the broad system of Christian ethics, which has three categories. You have things that are commanded, things you must do, you have things that are forbidden, things you must not do. And then you have a third category of things that are indifferent in and of themselves. The old word for that is adiaphora. These are things that are indifferent. A couple of examples uh, here to, so you could begin to fill out the chart. A commanded thing. Honor thy father and thy mother. A prohibited or forbidden thing. Thou shalt not steal. Indifferent things. Whether you eat shellfish. Or meat. Or only vegetables. Or wine. These would be things that are in and of themselves indifferent. Just a word of caution. Uh, when you put an indifferent thing in a context, it, it rarely remains indifferent. But these are things that are indifferent in and of themselves. So, for example, to have a glass of wine or not have a glass of wine in and of itself is indifferent. If it becomes an occasion for your brother to stumble in your use of it, it is no longer a thing indifferent. It becomes a violation of 
the general rules pertaining to love, you see. So uh, that's why we use the language of indifferent in and of itself. But almost everything becomes moral once you set it in a particular context, one way or another. With respect to worship, we have only a two-category system. A thing is either commanded, and so it must be done, or it is not commanded and must not be done. So only two, two categories, not three. Another way of saying this is with respect to God's worship, nothing is indifferent. There's no third category of things that are indifferent, permitted, or allowed. Either you must or you must not. So, uh, to get you started on your chart there, an example of a thing commanded would be prayer. We uh, spent in uh, recent weeks some time on this because we find that they not only have harps, the picture of saint, the saints in Revelation chapter 5, but they also have bowls full of incense, which represent their prayers. Prayer is a commanded thing. Some things are uh, expressly prohibited or forbidden. An example of this would be the use of idols in worship. But some things are implicitly prohibited simply because they're not commanded. An example of this would be a drama or an interpretive dance in worship. God doesn't he doesn't expressly forbid these things, but because they're not commanded, they are considered to be forbidden. There's a rigorous logic that's involved in this, but it's very fruitful if you understand it. I told the story just a couple of weeks ago of my own embracing of exclusive psalmody. I had not discussed the issues with my wife, so I was not very much inclined to attempt to bind her conscience to any kind of practice apart from teaching. I would not said very much about the issue at this point. I told her one morning that I couldn't go back to singing the hymns, but I uh, hadn't discussed it with her, so I would leave it up to her. But I did say, do, do you think that it would be a sin to omit the hymns? And she said, no. And I said, if you understand the regulative principle, that's actually the end of the argument. If it can be omitted, that means it's not commanded. And if it's not commanded, then it is forbidden. So you see how fruitful the logic can be if you understand it and you grasp its implications. This was, uh, this was our work last time because a, a grasp of the regulative principle is so important for everything that follows. But at the time, I did not, here I've defined the regulative principle, but I've undertaken really no biblical proof as of yet. And it's really um, that to which we turn our attention now. I wanted to uh, begin with the second commandment and make our way from the second commandment to the regulative principle of worship. I thought about doing this at some length because um, sometimes we can gloss issues or skate by them. We, we have a general sense of connection, but we never stop 
an examine to make sure that there's a connection indeed. The Roman Catholics did this. My mind was turned to this. I've been listening to Calvin's Institutes. Now available online to be read to you. So I, I listen when I'm too tired to read or um, when I'm showering and things like that when I can't read. I keep listening to other people read. Anyway, I was listening to the Institutes and he was talking about the Roman argument for the papacy. And all of the energy that's gone into those texts where Christ says to Peter, um, upon this rock, I will build my church. And they make a lot about Peter there. And the Reformed in some ways have been drawn into engaging the Romanists there. And there's reason to, because of course uh, it appears exegetically that Jesus is talking to Peter, but Peter as representatives of the entire apostolic college. He, Peter was speaking for all when he spoke there. But really, even Calvin points out, even if you conceded all of the exegesis to the Romanists at that point, that Christ was going to build upon Peter specifically and personally and uniquely, you're still a million miles away from anything like the papacy. First of all, you have a historical component. Was Peter ever in Rome? If he was ever in Rome, was he ever bishop of Rome? A very difficult thing historically. The Romanists assert he was, and I think he probably was in Rome at some point. But the Romanists also believe he was at one point bishop in Antioch. So it raises another question. Why did the apostolic see land in Rome rather than in Antioch? Since he was bishop in both places. And I use bishop there in the old sense of the word, mind you. Uh, pastor in that uh, place. Um, and even if you could prove that he had been bishop in Rome, you're still a million miles away from proving succession. See, you see how they, how they gloss. Like they try to get one thing and then they sort of gloss over about six other discrete points of logic that would be necessary in order to prove their point. Part of what I'm trying to do here is not gloss anything, but take it step by step. And so we begin with the second commandment. The second commandment has, in the Reformed tradition, been related to the regulative principle of worship. But it, it raises questions. How? I've given you the regulative principle. If it's not commanded, then it's forbidden. But turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. And you'll see that the uh, second commandment is not quite dealing with that. At least not in the express words and on the face of it. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God and so on. Now compare the two things and you'll, you'll see what I'm getting at here. The second commandment, you have a prohibition of the use of idols in worship. That's the express meaning of the words. The regulative principle, however, is, is a much broader concept. 
If it's not commanded for worship, then it's forbidden. And the question that's immediately before us is how do we make our way from the one, the second commandment, to the other, the regulative principle of worship. In your outline, I've, uh, I've included some of the historic Reformed creeds. So you can see that our Reformed forebears always did relate these things. First, we have the Westminster Standards, the Shorter Catechism 51. What is forbidden in the second commandment? The second commandment forbiddeth the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. I want you to notice here that they said um, the express language of the second commandment and the regulative principle side by side. And first they express the language of the second commandment. This forbids the worshiping of God by images the express language of the second commandment and then the regulative principle. We're also forbidden to worship in any other way that's not appointed in his word. So we only worship as God commands. No forms of worship are to be used except those forms that God himself has appointed. So you see the Westminster divines see a connection here between the second commandment and the regulative principle. I think that larger catechism 109 is even more interesting in this regard. Look there at larger catechism 109. What are the sins forbidden in the second commandment? The sins forbidden in the second commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, and anywise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself. The reason I say this is very interesting, because before they even get around to discussing the express language of the second commandment, they give us the broadest principle of the second commandment, that we're not to use any form of worship that God himself has not commanded. So they start their discussion of the regulative principle, of the second commandment with the regulative principle. And then they go on tolerating a false religion, the making any representation of God, of any or of any of the three persons, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly, and any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever. All worshiping of it, or God in it or by it, the making of any representation of famed deities and all worshiping of them or service belonging to them, all superstitious devices, corrupting the worship of God, adding to it or taking from it, whether invented and taken up of ourselves or received by tradition from others, though under the title of antiquity, custom, devotion, good intent, or any other pretense whatsoever. Synony, sacrilege, all neglect, contempt, hindering and opposing the worship and ordinances which God hath appointed. When you look at the layout here, when they say, what are the sins forbidden in the second commandment? They begin with the regulative principle as being the all-encompassing principle um, entailed in the commandment. We adhere to God's worship, 
and we don't change it. And idolatry is just one example of how this happens. I also included a little bit from the Heidelberg Catechism. I wanted you to know that this was not just the English Puritans or the Scottish Presbyterians. This was, um, this was a view that was held among all of the Reformed. It distinguished them somewhat from the Lutherans and a lot from the Roman Catholics. But this was something that was not peculiar to the English and the Scots, but was something that was shared by the Reformed of the continent. Heidelberg Catechism 96. What does God require in the second command? That we in no wise represent God by images, nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded in his word. It's very interesting. It's almost identical to the shorter catechism, isn't it? One simple point from all of this. Our forebears in the faith saw a relationship between the second commandment and the regulative principle of worship. And our job now is to sketch out that relationship. How do we get from the second commandment to the regulative principle of worship? So here I want to uh, attempt to move from the express words of the commandment to the broader concept. And you, sh you should still have Exodus 20, verse 4 in front of you. So these are the express words. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, and so on. The uh, idols are not to be used in the worship of God. A question immediately arises at this point. Is this a problem of object or means? This is a, uh, a long-standing problem and debate between uh, the Reformed and the Roman Catholics. You should know that the Roman Catholics take the first two commandments and they make them one. Thou shalt have no other gods before thee. Thou shalt not make any graven image. They treat as one commandment. And they treat all of it as being a problem of object. In other words, you shall not have a false god as the object of your worship. So for, this is very interesting because this is one of the ways that the Roman Catholics evade the fact, uh, evade the force of this commandment in that they actually kneel and bow down in front of graven images. It's expressly prohibited here. And the question always comes up, well, how do they evade it? What they do in their catechizing is they say, uh, children, what's the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. What's the second commandment? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The second commandment disappears as an exposition of the first. How do they get ten commandments? They take the rather lengthy tenth commandment prohibiting coveting and they divide it into two. So for the Roman Catholic, uh, there's only one commandment here and it addresses the worship of different gods. We're not to uh, worship any false gods. It doesn't say anything about how we are to worship the true God. And that opens the door for them to worship God in most any way that they find to be useful and expedient. The Reformed have always taken the first and second commandments as being distinct. 
And I don't want to descend into this, but isn't it obvious that the Tenth Commandment is one commandment? It's not two different commandments against coveting, but rather one, and that these are two different commandments. The first commandment forbids the worship of an improper object or false gods. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The second commandment addresses the means of worship. Thou shalt not worship even the true God in a false manner or by illegitimate means. I do want to, however, acknowledge here that there is some overlap between the first and second commandment in that both of them would, would prohibit the worshiping of false gods. Larger Catechism 109 recognizes this. Notice they say, the making of any representation of feigned deities, that's imaginary deities, and all worship of them or service belonging to them. So, of course, uh, here we have consonance or consistency with the first commandment, but the second commandment is not a mere repetition, but it also deals with the problem of means. The Westminster divines say there in Larger Catechism 109, all worshiping of it or God in it or by it. So if you construct an idol and you even attempt to worship the true God by means of it, you violated the second commandment. I was reading uh, Ezekiel Hopkins' book on the Ten Commandments not too long ago, and uh, he said that he thought too much ink had been spilled over the debate as to whether or not these are properly one or two commandments. He said, at the end of the day, with respect to meaning, it's irrelevant. Because whether you count it as one commandment together or two commandments separately, it is clear that part of the content of the command or commandments is to not worship God by an improper means or a non-commanded means. And you say, well, how do you know that? And finally, we uh, go from the express wording of the commandment to a larger understanding of it, that it's a prohibition of improper means in worshiping God. Turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 12. I am a frustrated preacher because I wish we could do a sermon series through uh, Deuteronomy. A very uh, profitable thing to be done. A brief layout of the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is soon to die. and Deuteronomy, you have his last speeches as he prepares to die and send Israel over Jordan under the command of Joshua. So here we find um, uh, Moses not only as the king in Jeshurun, but uh, as the great prophet of the church at that time. He is preaching to the people. The first four chapters is a review of how they got from Sinai to where they are now. So it's something of a covenant history of the last 40 years of wilderness wandering. He concludes with the with chapter five, which is a repetition of the Ten Commandments. And then beginning with chapter six through 
chapter 26, he pretty much goes commandment by commandment and instructs them in how to apply the Ten Commandments in the new context of uh, the Canaanite invasion and settlement. So you're not going to be wilderness wanderers anymore, largely left alone into yourselves. You're getting ready to invade a pagan land filled with pagan people. You're going to settle there. And this is how you apply the Ten Commandments in this very new context. Something very useful indeed for people getting ready to pass over Jordan. Chapters, um, uh, beginning with chapter 27 to the end of the book, you get the covenant uh, blessings and curses and then an epilogue. Uh, Moses does indeed die. And he delivers a song to, to the people, a song of remembrance. That he had given them these commandments. They would not keep these commandments. They would be taken away in the Babylonian captivity. And this song would be a memorial stone against them. So this is pretty much the uh, book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 12 is a, uh, a presentation of basically the second commandment. And how they are to apply it in the context of the invasion. Israel is getting ready to go into the midst of idolatrous people groups and Moses would prepare them for the temptations that they're going to face. And first of all, in the first four verses, Moses, I'll give you a brief summary and then we'll look at the text, but Moses says, you're going to go into this pagan land. You're going to see these people and how they worship their gods. You are not to pay the slightest bit of attention to the way that they worship their gods, no matter how wise it seems, no matter what the external glory. Whatever they did, simply ignore it, because you are not going to worship the Lord your God in those ways. So verse 1. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall observe to do in the land, which the Lord God of thy fathers giveth thee to possess it, all the days that ye live upon the earth. Ye shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which ye shall possess serve their gods, upon the high mountains and upon the hills and under every green tree. And ye shall overthrow their altars and break their pillars and burn their groves with fire. And ye shall hew down the graven images of their gods and destroy the names of them out of that place. Ye shall not do so unto the Lord your God. It's that fourth verse that shows you that it's a problem of means that's primarily in view. In, in chapters 6 through 11, he did tell them not to be seduced by their gods and not to worship their gods. That's the problem of object. That's not what he's talking about here. His problem now is when you observe the way that they worship, be careful that you don't take their pagan worship practices and import them into the worship of the true and living God. This is not a problem of object. It's a problem of means. In our second sermon today, we'll look a little bit more at verses 5 through 28. Uh, and even then very briefly. But as your eyes scan down the passage, the basic sum total of all of that is. Uh, you're going to continue to worship God the way that he has commanded. And so he goes through a brief survey of all that God had taught them concerning his worship in Exodus, 
Leviticus and Numbers. So you're not going to worship, try to worship Jehovah the way that the pagans worship their gods. You're simply going to continue in the worship that God had delivered. And you're going to continue to worship him in that way. And when we get to verse 29, you get a summary of the whole discussion. And I want to pick back up there. When the Lord thy God shall cut off the nations from before thee, whither thou goest to possess them, and thou succeedest them and dwellest in their land, take heed to thyself that thou be not snared by following them, after that they be destroyed from before thee, and that thou inquire not after their God, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise. Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God. For every abomination to the Lord which he hateth have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters they have burned in the fire to their gods. What things soever I commend you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. I hope that we can all together as a body, draw from this some relatively at this point modest conclusions. That the second commandment as applied by Moses here uh, not only forbids the worshipping of a different God, chapter 6 through 11, but also forbids the worshipping of the true God, which would be the right object, by idols, the wrong means. Can we all see that pretty much this is right on the face of it? So you have a commandment, and within the scope of its application, in the scope of its practical bearing, is that we're not to worship even the true God by idols or by the wrong means. But we still have a little bit further to go with respect to logic here. Idols are here expressly forbidden as a means of worshiping God. But the regulative principle actually says more. The regulative principle isn't just if God forbids something for worship, it's not to be done. But it's anything that he's not commanded. Anything in the whole world that he's not commanded is considered forbidden for worship. And so we have to go yet uh, um, a little bit further. And we are going to undertake that in our um, in our second sermon a little bit about my, my structure right here. I had really... Um, the reason we're going to do another sermon in the harp praise of the people of God this morning, I really wished I had about four hours because it's about four hours of consecutive uh, argumentation to look at this step by step without, without glossing over um, any of the details. I don't have four hours. I have two. So I'm going to use both of those two hours this morning. But what I want you to notice right now, and you'll have, you'll have accomplished everything that I intend to accomplish in this first one if you take this. We have the express prohibition of idols. And this is not just um, the worshiping of different gods. It's any attempt to worship the true God by means of idols. And we're going to go from that to a much broader concept that any means that God is not commanded for worship are considered uh, forbidden. And at this point we will leave off and uh, it seems seasonable that we pray 
and ask God to help. I know that the, this is um, uh, something of a rigorous method, somewhat unusual uh, for preaching, all things considered, probably even more than what I'm accustomed to, to do in preaching. But I do believe, if you can hang with me over the course of about two weeks, by the time we get to the end of it, you'll have before you a rich display of, of the glory of God and how the glory of God is displayed in this worship and how important it is that we maintain the worship that he has given directly as it's come from his hand to make sure it's his glory that's displayed and not obscured by our inventions and intrusions into the worship. So what's at stake here? The glory of God, which is our chief and let us pray together.